The following is a production of the people of Mars Hill. For more information, visit pomh.org. We're looking at chapter two. I was out last week, was in another country on the other side of the world, hearing from persecuted Christians, and it was a, a great week. Uh, so I've been reacclimating back to this time. And so I've been waking up in the middle of the night and going to sleep in the afternoon, but it was a great time. I hope to share more of, of what I learned and some of the experiences, some of the stories that I heard while I was there. Uh, but I was thankful for our staff and such great teachers that we have that fill in whenever I have to step out. So it's an, an awesome thing that we have here that's a, a part of our culture. Uh, we wanna jump back into where we left off last week in chapter two of Malachi. And what we have here is Malachi beginning to go further into uh, the accusations that he is presenting to the people of Israel. Now remember, this is after they've come back for the, from the exile. So this is post-exile. And this is actually after they've been there for a while. So when they first come back, what we see in the book of Ezra is there is this um, confession. There is this awareness that they have not lived up to their part of the covenant that God extended to them at Mount Sinai. They that God not being faithful to God's law. But what's happened now is after they've been back in the land, and maybe it isn't the way it used to be, and maybe they aren't as prosperous as they were at one time, but they've begun to experience a little bit of prosperity. And what has happened is their hearts have gone right back to that same place that was what got them in trouble in the exile or got them sent to exile in the very beginning. And so Malachi is pointing out a lot of these things here. So what we have is uh, a picture of marriage that he, he's going to get into here. Now, how many of y'all are married here in this room? Yeah. Now, I would say if you're happily married, keep your hand up in the air, but I'm not going to do that today because, you know, I want to make sure I get through the sermon and everybody actually hears it and we don't get into a little discussion. It's like, you know, you better raise your hand. Um, but would you agree? Um, I spend a lot of time doing marriage counseling. I always jokingly say, sometimes I even do it for other people. But um, I, I do spend a lot of my time talking about marriage and talking with people about their marriage. And the one thing I find is that many people going into marriage have this idea of what it's going to be, and it's never whatever you've conceived in your mind. You know, it's always way more difficult. It's never a, a, as pleasurable as you think it's going to be. It's never as rewarding as you think it's going to be. There's a lot of difficulties that come with it. And so I always tell people before they get married, when I do pre-marriage counseling, I always say, listen, marriage was never meant to make you happy. It was meant to make you miserable. Um, because if you think about it, it is two selfish people that come together and now they're going to begin sharing stuff. That's never a recipe for happiness. That is a recipe for disaster. But what happens is whenever we allow that marriage context to grow us in the likeness of Christ, we have opportunities because we are both fallen people and we're in a relationship with a fallen person. There's going to be opportunities for us to grow in our relationship with Christ to trust him, to lean on him. And it's also an opportunity for that other person to grow. So within the context of marriage, we lean more and more on Christ. And then all of a sudden what happens is through the difficulty that marriage creates, happiness becomes a byproduct of marriage. 
It's not the exact product. In other words, people, just because you get married doesn't mean you're going to be happy. Matter of fact, it does mean that you'll experience times of great difficulty because you did get married. But if you handle that difficulty properly, if you handle it from the context of what Scripture teaches us about relationships, our relationship with God and our relationship with each other, happiness can be a byproduct of marriage. And so that's really the focus I want to uh, kind of bring in here as we look at this, what, what is very a difficult, very much so a difficult passage. Um, when we go through dating, we don't think of dating as difficult. Maybe even when you get to engagement, you don't think of that as all that difficult, although it gets more difficult, doesn't it? And it's starting to get real. You know, you're starting to have to pay for things. You're starting to have to plan things. And, and your thing is, well, once we get married, things will be so much better. And then we get to that point and we realize that it's not exactly what we thought it was going to be. Some of you in this room may be single. Others of you may have been married for 40 years or longer. And yet others of you have probably dealt with the great pain of divorce, or you've experienced or been on the stinging side of unfaithfulness in marriage. Maybe many of you have been on the giving side of that unfaithfulness of marriage. It's amazing because the people of God, the church of God, is made up from people from all different walks of life. And I don't know where you are in your relationship with each other or your relationship with God, but the one thing that I want to say is that this passage speaks to all of us, no matter what context we're coming from. Today, we're going to talk about the marriage covenant, because so many of us are or have been affected by good or bad marriages. There may be people here who are not married at all, but you've been affected by a good or a bad marriage. Many of you may have been married many times, and you've not only been affected by the marriages that you've been in, but you were probably already impacted by a marriage that you were a part of growing up, that you saw modeled for you day in and day out. God has clearly laid out for us the boundaries for marriage within his holy word. And, and, and we often find humans breaking their promises, not only to each other, but don't we often find ourselves breaking our promises to God? And that becomes a trend for us. And so if we're honest about where we've come from and what our journey looks like, honestly, our journey, especially with God, is often a bunch of broken promises. Things that we say that we'll do that we don't follow through with. Things that we say we'll do. If you do this for me, God, I promise you I'm going to follow through with this. And then we don't follow through with those things. So in our passage today, we're going to see God's dispute against this large community of his people. And in the context, what you're going to see is that men were being unfaithful to their wives. And what they were doing is divorcing their wives and going and marrying these pagan women from these other countries. And not only were they marrying them, but they began to worship their gods as well. So Malachi in this passage calls them out of their unfaithfulness and back to the faithfulness of their wives in Israel. The call to faithfulness is a very high calling, no doubt. I mean, today we're going to see that as hard as it often is, there's this great joy in faithfulness. There's a great joy when we keep our promises both to one another and to God. We are all prone to wander as we sing that hymn so often. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. We are prone to wander away from creator God and not keep our promises that we've made to him. But there is hope for us in Jesus, that we can remain faithful and that we can live lives and have marriages that reflect or image 
Christ's relationship with God or Christ's faithfulness even to his people or Christ's love for his church. All those things that we see in the person and characteristics of Christ can be reflected by us if we learn to lean into him. Now, I want to show you a couple of pictures here uh, of a couple of trees. Go ahead to the first one here. Now, this is a tree that you would probably see uh, in a nice place, right? It's beautiful. Everything's manicured around it very much. So this is the kind of tree you would see on a nice piece of property, maybe even on a golf course somewhere off to the side. You may hate it because your ball always ends up right there at the base of it, or you can't get over it, whatever it may be. But this is a beautiful tree. I think we would agree with that. Go to the second picture. Now, this is a very different tree. This is a tree that you can tell now, if you can't see it real good, it actually does have a trunk that comes up. The trunk comes back down, and the tree that you see there is not a tree behind that trunk. It is literally coming out of the top of that. Now, what you see here is a tree that has been through a lot of tragedy. This is a tree that has weathered a lot of drought. This is a tree that has weathered a lot of storms. This is a tree that has weathered a flood. And all of those things have impacted this tree to the point that it looks very different from the first one. Let's show both of them together. Now, when you look at both of these together, which one would you say is the more beautiful tree? I think that maybe it has to do with, with your perspective, but here's the thing. Don't you know that that second tree has a lot more of a story to tell? If you're a photographer, which one of these trees are you going to take a picture of? If you're walking through the forest, which one of these trees are you going to notice more than the other? Which one are you going to stop and look at? And let me ask you this question. Which one of these trees do you think the birds like the most? Which one of these trees do you think the children like the most? That tree right there looks like a lot of fun, doesn't it? That second one. I mean, I can climb on that. I can get my Hot Wheels out and pretend, you know, I'm riding through some hills with that. I mean, I could just see a lot of fun happening there. So at first glance, we would say, man, that one that looks so perfect, man, that's a beautiful tree. But I would argue the one that is imperfect actually tells a much more rich story. Do you see that? Oftentimes, I think that's the way it is with us. That one tree is a young, beautiful tree, but that other tree has a story to tell of faithfulness, one that has not given up through the circumstances that it's been in, one that has a story of overcoming and becoming something beautiful, even be, maybe even becoming a masterpiece. This, this is a, a tree that's gnarled and pushed by the wind, a tree that's probably had to deal with some bad soil in its life, but it's still thriving. And people like to imagine that their marriages are like that tree at the top. They want to see that it's beautiful, that it looks beautiful to the eye. But the reality is the majority of our circumstances don't allow us for that because life throws us many loops. Faithfulness and resilience bring into a marriage the traits that Jesus often wants in all of our lives, doesn't it? I mean, you think about the things that Jesus says should be a part of our lives, gentleness, goodness, patience, self-control. These are the fruits of the Spirit. And the fruits of the Spirit aren't cultivated in a picture-perfect setting. They're cultivated in a less-than-desirable setting. And so the passage here in chapter 2, verse 10, is the third disputation that Malachi presents to us. Here Malachi uses the example of marriage to point out the unfaithfulness within Israel. Now, in doing this, God is highlighting the current condition of Judah. 
and especially Judah's relationship with Yahweh. Look at verse 10. Have we not all one father? Has not one God created us? Why then are we faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? Now, there's a lot in this right here. And Malachi starts off in this passage specifically with these rhetorical questions. And the, the purpose of these rhetorical questions is to draw our focus towards the theme of this passage, which is about the faithlessness of man and the faithfulness of God and the impact and consequences that both of those have. There are three total questions in this passage, and what you see is they are actually playing off of one another. The first question is about God as our Father. Have we not all one Father? In other words, calling us to the fact that we have one father. What does a father do? A father takes care of his children. A good father does, right? A father is one who is a provider. He's a protector. He's an overseer. And so they bring them back to this question of, don't we all have one father? This, isn't everything given to us, every good and perfect gift, doesn't come from one source? Don't we have one father? Aren't we all, remember he's speaking to the people of Judah, aren't we all the children of God? Aren't we the chosen ones through Abraham? Don't we all come from one father. Look how he continues that. The second question, he highlights God as a creator, not just as a father, but also as a creator. And I think this is meant to understand God, first of all, as a creator of everything in general, but then obviously in the way it's stated, it's specifically creators of us. Look at what he says there. Has not one God created us? So we see God and Israel have this special relationship. Don't we have one father? Isn't God the one who has created us? Hasn't he cared for us as a father? Hasn't he chosen us through Abraham to be his very own? So after you've asked those first two questions, the third question is actually built on that. So the third question is after you have answered those first two rhetorical questions, then the third question really gets to the heart of it. It's a play off of those first two. Their relationship with God is directly reflected by their relationship with each other. Look at what he says. Why then are we faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? So do you see how they play off of each other? So he's setting up the third question, which is really the thrust of what he wants to talk about with those first two leading us to that. So these series of questions are pointing out the faithlessness that they have shown to one another and how that's actually breaking the covenant that their fathers made with God. So the divorce epidemic among God's people has not only harmed their community and their culture as a whole, but has actually damaged their relationship with God himself. That's what he sets off there in verse 10. Now look at how he continues in verse 11. Judah has been faithless, and abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign god. So verse 11 gives the evidence of what's been going on. We've talked about this before. Malachi throughout, he, he puts out this proposition, and then he offers evidence for that proposition that he's put out there. So in the questions he's presented where he's going with this, now he's offering us the evidence behind that. 
it is shocking to say the least. God says that they have been faithless. He says that they have committed an abomination. And that is a very, very strong word when you talk about the context and the vocabulary of the Old Testament. What is the evidence of this abomination? And he says there that it's these mixed marriages. So the significance of this is that the mixed marriages were actually forbidden by the law of Moses. You can go back to Deuteronomy chapter 7 and read about this. These marriages were leading the people of Israel away from their God. Now, the one thing that you have to pay attention to here and make sure you're careful to understand is that the prohibition of intermarriage was not based on their race. It was based on their faith. It wasn't because they were marrying people of a different nationality. It's because they were marrying, intermarrying with a culture who had a whole separate God and did not believe in Yahweh, and they were bringing them to the worship of their foreign gods instead of them bringing them to the understanding of a one true God. That's really what this is about. Remember, too, in the Old Testament, the reason that God was very specific about them marrying only within Israel is because the promise of a Messiah was going to come through the seed of one of the women. And so there is a protection of that line through the Old Testament to make sure that God is faithful to provide that. And so after Jesus comes into this, this is where Paul begins to say, you know, in Christ, we are all one. There's not Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, male nor female. We are all one in Christ. But until we get to Christ, there is this exclusivity that God has chosen the people of Israel to bring forth the Messiah that we see in the person of Jesus. So all of this really figures into understanding what's behind this. It's not just because God said, I like it this way, and I don't like y'all going and doing any other things. No, there's something behind it. There's something intentional. And there's something that they're robbing themselves of by not abiding by the covenant that was established by their fathers with God. This is why Malachi is pointing this out. And just to go and show you, there are many marriages in the Old Testament where an Israelite married a foreign woman and God blessed the marriage. One that we studied recently is Ruth. But do you remember about Ruth? She was one who said, your God will be my God. See, it wasn't about her bringing an Israelite man into the worship of a foreign God. She had already committed herself in totality to God of Israel, Yahweh. And so there's a picture where we can see, and I can show you others, but it's not the focus of where we're going to go today, but that's just an example of this is not saying, you know, Israelites, only Israelites, that's it. No, it's a picture of our worship and our allegiance to God. So he wants to show how, Malachi does, how the betrayal of legitimate and lifelong marriage relationships can have this dangerous social and religious consequence. The picture of unfaithfulness that Malachi creates just goes to show that oftentimes our social ails that we see in our society actually all, always have a spiritual root to them, do they not? I mean, when we think about the things that we talk about the most in our society, when we talk about the cultural problems that we have, I guarantee you that when you trace them back, they all have a spiritual root. Have you ever noticed that some of the biggest social issues today find themselves in Genesis chapter 1 and 2 and 3. Think about this for a moment. And I'm not going to get political with this. I'm just going to show you something. Do you know the biggest issues that we deal with in our culture, American culture today? Abortion, would you agree that that's one of the hot topic issues? 
Would you agree that homosexual marriage is a big issue? Would you believe that gender confusion is a big issue? Would you say that those are three of the biggest issues? Isn't it amazing that in Genesis 1 and 2, it says that God created them male and female to re reproduce after their own kind. In the very beginning, God says, a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife and the two shall become one. And the first command ever given to them was what? Be fruitful and isn't it amazing that all three of the things that we deal with in our culture go against what God commanded right there at the very beginning in Genesis 1 and 2? I mean, I think that when we go and see what we actually deal with in our culture, what we find is a culture that Malachi sees, that we are rebelling against God, that we just want to do whatever he tells us to do, we're going to do the opposite. How many of you were those kind of kids when you were little? How many of you now, God is revisiting this on you, and you have those kind of kids. I mean, you can pretty much tell that one kid, you know? It's like that, I uh, talked about that comedian. He says, I have two amazing kids. And everybody's like, oh, and, he goes, and then I have this other kid. And I think we all can experience that. I mean, sometimes we always get that one kid that no matter what you tell them to do, they're going to do the opposite. They're going to be the kind of kid you say, don't touch that. And they look at you and go, you know, it's just defiance. Have you ever seen that? Have you ever been that? Yeah. If you haven't been physically, I can promise you, you have been spiritually. And, and that really goes to the context of this rebellious nature that we have. This rebellious nature that we have as humans and that we have as a culture, as we that we have as a society. And so many of the things that we see here that Malachi is bringing out are many of the things that we deal with as well. Look at verse 12. May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob. Now, who is Jacob? He's the one whose name was turned to Israel. Okay, so it's going back to the very beginning. May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob any descendant of the man who does this, who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts. So what he's saying there, it's a very complicated verse. I don't want to get into the nuances of the grammar uh, but let me just say this. This is all about unfaithfulness. Not only an unfaithfulness to each other, but the fact that as I'm unfaithful in my relationship with fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, or in this case, other Israelites, I am still going to go and present an offering to the Lord as if everything is fine and dandy. Now, the reason I would do that, I want you to think for a moment, why would I do that? Why would I be faithless in my relationship with others and then still follow through with giving an offering to God. Here's why. Because I want God to be on my side. I feel like I can manipulate God. I feel like if I can give God what he wants, I can get what I want out of him. And my frustration is going to come when I am doing all the things that I'm supposed to do, but I'm not getting the result from God that I think he owes me. And you're going to see that develop in this passage right here. Before we jump into that, as we see in verse 13, let's talk about this term, cut off. That's a very interesting term there. Uh, it's a picture of being cut off from the people of God, cut off from the blessings of God, and, and ultimately cut off from God himself. Think of what this impacts. The unintended consequence is that the following generations were going to be separated. Did you see that? Anyone from the tent of Jacob would be cut off? So the picture there is that those that would follow, the generations that would follow from someone who would be so unfaithful to their brothers and sisters, so unfaithful 
to the others that are in their community and still try to be faithful to God, that they will be cut off. But it's not just talking about them. It's talking about the generations that follow them as well will be cut off. How many times do we experience that the sins of the father are visited on the next generation and the next generation and the next generation and the next generation? How many of us, the addictions that we deal with, how many of us, the problems that we deal with are actually problems that have been handed down and then exacerbated in our generation? And then what are we handing off to the next? Verses 13 through 16 begin to shift a focus. Now, he's talked about marriage up to this point, but now he's going to focus on divorce. And that's the second thing that he talks about there at the beginning of verse 13. There have been selfish economic reasons that the men of Israel are doing this. Here's what many authors say. They say Malachi's speech censoring divorce was likely prompted by the actions of men divorcing their wives and marrying foreign women in order to gain access to local commerce by marrying into the trade guilds and business cartels. So what's happened is they've come back. There are these isolated people. God has allowed them to come back into this area, and they say, you know, if we're ever going to flourish, if we're ever going to be what we used to be under Solomon, maybe we need to live like Solomon. What did Solomon do? He married all these women from all these other places and, and had these peace treaties and exchange of, of, of trading deals and all those kinds of things that were happening in that day and time. So it seems that many of them are saying, you know what, if we're ever going to get to the place of where we were under Solomon, then we've got to think like Solomon. And so they begin to engage in these relationships from the perspective of pure profitability. Look at what it says in verse 13. And this second thing you do, you cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning, because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. Okay, I want you to get a picture of that. There's this picture of someone at the altar of God, and they are weeping and they are crying and they're covering the altar with their tears because they have laid out a sacrifice that God will not accept. Does that remind you of any other story in scripture where God didn't accept a sacrifice? It goes all the way back to the beginning again, doesn't it? Uh, when we think about Abel and we think about Cain and God was always accepting the sacrifice of Abel, but he would not accept the sacrifice of Cain. And this drove Cain to anger. And it drove him to do what? To murder his brother, to kill his own within his own community. So there he was offering these offerings to God over and over again. And yet in tears and frustration, he became angry at God and angry at his brother because his offering wasn't being accepted. Now, was it not being accepted simply because God didn't like him? Or was it not being accepted because of the condition of his heart or the condition of how it was being offered? I think his heart showed itself in how he lived out his feelings of anger and resentment. 
And I think that this is the same thing that it's telling us in 13 again. Think about what it says in 13 with that story in the backdrop again. The second thing you do, you cover the Lord's altar with tears by weeping and groaning because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. So verse 13 tells us that the offerings of the people were not being accepted by God. This is weeping. Listen to me. This is very important to understand. This is weeping on the part of that person. Understand. This is because God's not doing what they want God to do. They're weeping because they want to offer this sacrifice so that they can feel good about their relationship with God and go on about their business. But this is not weeping of repentance. This is weeping because I can't manipulate God. I can't get him to do the things that I want him to do. This is weeping without repenting of the behavior that the sacrifice should be representing as a sacrifice for. Another author writes this. He says, as so often occurs among those who claim to follow the Lord, they were complaining because the Lord was not meeting their demands. They never imagined that the failure was their own. You see this? How many times do we go to God and we're demanding that God do something and we weep and we cry because he doesn't respond the way that we think. And yet the very essence of our prayers are a picture of us not trusting God with our life. We're saying, God, there's only one result that I'm going to accept here. And that's this right here. I don't trust you with this. So I know that you're God and I know that you're sovereign. I know that you're powerful, but here's the thing. I know better how this situation should work out than you. So unless you do this, I'm going to see this as you not being faithful to me. And all the while in our conversation, what we're really saying is I'm not going to be faithful to you. Do you see this? I want to tell you a story about a lady by the name of Jill and a man named Alex. Jill and Alex are examples of faithfulness in the midst of a struggling marriage. They were married at the young age of 19, both of them 19 years old. And in the midst of many trials and tribulations, they filed for divorce. Alex was working more than 90 hours a week. Jill found that her expectations of marriage, what she thought it was going to be like when she went into it, were not being met. Jill was 24 when she told Alex that she didn't want to be married anymore. Alex, however, wasn't done with their marriage because he had had a change of heart. He had come to understand Christ as his Lord. He wanted to fight for their faithfulness and their honor and he wanted to honor the commitment that they had made before God to love and to serve and to sacrifice for each other and him specifically for Jill. So they started going to a marriage counselor. They got advice from their parents. They started working through some hard issues. Alex even cut back the hours that he was working. Yet all of this wasn't enough for Jill. At the final marriage conference that they went to, after hearing all that they talked about a godly marriage could be, Jill looked at Alex and said, and I quote, I believe all these things, and I want all these things. I just don't want them with you. At the marriage program, after his wife had left, Alex still went ahead and signed the marriage covenant, hoping that one day in the future, Jill would also sign the covenant too. But a few months later, she ended up filing for divorce, and the divorce became final. Alex was heartbroken. After the divorce was finalized, Jill started dating other men and becoming involved with them. But all the while, she couldn't keep her mind off 
of Alex. How she was attracted to these other men, but yet they didn't quite meet the dedication, the faithfulness that she experienced with him. And after a long period of time, six months passed after the divorce was finalized, she went back to her husband and she asked Alex this question. Do you think we could have made it? Alex's answer was a picture of faithfulness through a lot of hurt. He said, I know we could have. And through a series of events, three months later, they decided to annul the divorce and give marriage another try. And through counseling and through Alex's decision to fight for his marriage and to fight for his wife, things started to turn around in their marriage because it was no longer built or focused on what they were getting out of it, but they began to look at it as something that they are contributing something to. So often in our relationship with God, we have the perspective of Jill. I want all these things. I believe all these things. I just don't want them with you. Over and over again in the way that we treat God, in the way that we live out our lives, we live out that statement that she said to her husband. Oftentimes we, change, we believe what we hear here on Sundays. We want the peace and the serenity that is offered to us through our relationship with Christ. But the problem is we don't want it in the context of what we believe that relationship will cost us because we want to keep control of our own destiny. We have been deceived by our own desires. Look how this continues in verse 14. But you say, why does he not? Because the Lord, and remember, this is why does he not accept this sacrifice? Why does he not? Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Uh, Paul picks up on this later on in the New Testament. He talks about how our, our very prayers can be hindered because of our relationship with our spouse. That when our relationship with our spouse isn't right, that our prayers can be hindered in that. Why? Because somehow our relationship, our marriage relationship is reflective of our relationship with God. Now it's not this, listen to me. It's not you get your marriage relationship right and then all of a sudden your relationship with God is right. It's that the focus has to become your relationship with God. And when that is right, then the horizontal relationship can become right as well. And that's the picture that's created there in verse 14. Here's the answer to the question. Why is God not accepting their offerings? Because you are confused. You have separated your worship of God from your dealings at home and in your relationships at home. To say that God hates divorce is to say that he hates everything that also leads to that divorce. It's not just the act that God hates. God doesn't hate it when you sign a piece of paper. God doesn't hate it when you just call a lawyer. God hates the things that lead to divorce. Divorce is just a culmination of a whole lot of rebellion in our heart. And I often say this, there are no innocent parties in divorce because there are no innocent parties in marriage. Can I get an amen? I mean, divorce is not about who was more right or who was wrong. Divorce is about something went wrong in this relationship that should reflect the character of God. Now, I know that there are some people that are obviously more at fault for it actually happening, for it going through. People necessarily, you know, divorce happens, especially in the state of Alabama, because all you have to have is one person who wants it. 
There are other states where you have to have both people before it can be granted. But in the state of Alabama, only one person has to want the divorce and it will be granted by the courts. So I understand that there, if you wear that big D on your chest because you are divorced and you feel that stigma, let me, let me tell you something. There is no judgment here, okay? And we're not here to say, well, who is right, who is wrong? No, no, that's not it. The point is we want to come back to our relationship with God, and we want to make sure that that relationship is right. You see, divorce or addiction or lying or whatever it may be, materialism for some of us, those are all just a reflection of we need to go back and examine our hearts and make sure our relationship with God is right. Those are all just examples of how when we don't get our relationship with God right, it infiltrates all other areas of our life. And so when we understand what God is teaching us through Malachi here about companionship and oneness in marriage, what he hates is the failure to work through those things to achieve what marriage was intended to be. We may be inclined to think that what goes on in our homes doesn't have any bearing on the rest of our life, but the tragedy is it does. And here in Malachi's day, we find men going to meet the Lord at the temple. The Lord points them back to their homes. Family life is the one thing that colors and influences every other aspect of our life. Here, too, we see the faithfulness of our faithlessness of men being compared to their faithlessness in God. The creator God, Yahweh, is witness between man and woman in marriage. We see that in the very beginning. Of course, God is concerned with these things. He's the God of covenant. He cares that people keep their promises, not only to him, but also to one another, which really goes all the way back to how this starts in verse 10. Our relationship with God is reflected in our relationship with each other, just like those first two questions would point us toward. Look at verse 15. Did he not make them one with a portion of the spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. So guard yourselves in your spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. So verse 15 is probably one of the most unintelligible phrases in the entire Old Testament. Okay, and I'm, that's not me saying that. That's commentaries that say this is one of the hardest verses, if not the hardest verse to translate in the entire Old Testament. It's very hard the way this is constructed in the original language to understand exactly how it should be translated into our language. Nevertheless, many good scholars have summarized its meaning this way, and I quote, Don't you know that God made you one with your wives? And in spite of your treachery and divorcing your wives, there is still a remnant of that spiritual bond. And what is the purpose of that oneness? It is to produce godly offspring with God's help. You see, it's important to note here that the purpose of marriage is to produce godly children so that the legacy of the creator God could continue throughout the entire world. The whole point of marriage is the production of offspring that would also be faithful to God. When he says be fruitful and multiply and subdue the earth, he's talking about subduing the earth for the glory of God. He's talking about that just as we look to God and we want to image him, so we would have children that would look to us as we look to God and they would image him. 
Paul reiterates this idea when he says to Timothy, hey, follow me as I follow after Christ. This is talking about spiritual children. And then he tells Timothy to go and do all of these things. It would be teaching of the word and, and, and discipling other men and, and being faithful to the word and the preaching of the word so they can go forth throughout the world. See, it's all about the glory of God. What happens a lot of times in our social issues, the reason they become so contentious is because we leave the merit of our argument on the social issue by itself. We say, well, you know, so-and-so should have this right because they have as much right as this person. But what, what we're missing there is, Where's the glory of God in it? How does this reflect the glory of God? Once you remove the glory of God and the focus of God's glory as being the foundation of why we do what we do, now all of a sudden it's just personal preference. And there's no argument that can be cast out because it's based on how I feel or what I want to do. And that's why the Word of God and understanding the Word of God is so important. Not just doing spiritual things, but being spiritual. And being spiritual means this. It means I want to live for the glory of God. It means that I understand that my time here is very short. And the only way that I can leave a legacy is really through my children. And so my goal as a parent is to foster faith in my kids. And if I was a single man, my goal would be to foster faith in the kids of this church, to invest in them, to disciple them. My goal as a grandparent is to foster relationships with the next generation so that they may believe and know and they may take the glory of God to the uttermost parts of this world. All of a sudden, the glory of God is about how I can further God's name and not mine, how I can build God's kingdom and not mine. That's when God begins to accept our sacrifices because they're made from a worthy ambition. There's nothing wrong with ambition. Ambition gets a bad name because we think of ambition as, oh, that's a selfish ambition. Ooh, that's bad. But yet yeah, what makes that ambition bad is the selfish part. But ambition for the glory of God, ambition for the kingdom of God, that's what God puts inside of each one of us. That's why college students will leave this, this nation and go to other places and invest themselves in villages in Africa because it's for the glory of God. That's why uh, men and women will sacrifice things that they could have in this life to fund events that would further the kingdom of God. That's why so many people will make sacrifices for their children to be able to understand and learn and experience the kingdom of God rather than just the thrills of this life. It's important to understand that is the focus of marriage. It is godly children. It's amazing to me how many people will get married and say, we're just not going to have kids. And then my next question is, why did you even get married? Now, I understand there are people who get married and they can't have kids. And that's, that's given to the sovereignty of God. And, and how, why that happens and how it happens, man, I can't answer that. I don't know. But I would, do, I would say this. No one should ever go into marriage saying, we're not going to have kids. Why? Because against what God instructed us to do. Be fruitful and multiply. I also think it's bad when you go into it in full. There's only two of you, and all you've done is replaced yourselves. You've got to have at least three. That's what I did. Okay? <laughs> so here's the thing. But ultimately, if you think about it, we, we would say that we are staunch advocates for a pro-life perspective. 
but let me just get up in the kitchen for a minute and throw a wrench in that. How many of us take birth control? Now, it may not be the same thing as destroying what God has created in the womb, but in a lot of ways, and I'm not, I'm not answering this, I'm just throwing it out there for you to discuss. In a lot of ways, is that not playing God? I will have children on my terms, God. Now, people argue, well, it's, a, it's about being good stewards. You could argue that. And again, I'm not giving you an answer. I'm just giving something for you to talk about later on. But think about this. We say that we're about these things, but what about how it continues throughout the rest of our life, throughout the rest of our day? If it's all about the glory of God and it's about being fruitful and multiplying, how do we often step in and play the role of God in very subtle ways? And have we thought about that? Have we given consideration to that? Be fruitful and multiply. One commentator says it this way. Too often do contemporary married couples think of children as an option. They regard their own personal happiness or fulfillment as the primary goal in marriage. We're not going to have kids for five years so that we can enjoy our time and we're going to travel the way. You see where we're going with this? This was never to be the case according to the biblical revelation. The first divine command given to the first human couple was to be fruitful and increase in number and fill the earth and subdue it. God intended that a man's purpose in departing from his father and mother and in joining himself to a wife by covenant, thus becoming one with her in flesh, should be fruitfulness. By that means, by that means, discipling children who would manifest the divine glory in their obedient lives and continue the process until the earth was full of his glory. Although sin interfered with the process, the purpose has not been superseded. Although couples can no longer be assured of bearing children as the theme of barrenness in Genesis makes clear, we see it in the story of Sarah, we see it in the story of Rachel, we see it over and over again. Still, we are to seek them and can reproduce ourselves in other ways if necessary through adoption or through spiritual discipleship. You see, what we find here is that Malachi's contemporaries, the people that he's speaking to here in this passage, like many modern couples, had disregarded their divine responsibilities. The men engrossed in their own selfish goals were seemingly interested in acquiring wives that could help them achieve those goals. Certainly, as it says in verse 11, that marrying the daughters of a foreign god was not the way that we should seek to, to have a divine seed of God. In other words, to carry the glory of God throughout the earth. And look at the final verse for today, verse 16. For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless. Verse 16 equates the importance of marriage covenant with a covenant that we also make with God. And there is this major call to be faithful in our marriages and not these selfish pursuits that are all based in our own selfish ambition. If one divorces his wife, notice that Malachi says there that he covers his garment with violence. Now that's a very odd phrase. It, also, it almost seems difficult to understand, 
But another commentary brings some clarity to it. He says this, a reference to a man behaving unjustly towards his wife by divorcing her, the prophet deemed divorce as a social crime and an act of violence or injustice because it fractured the social glue of divinely ordained marriage covenant and deprived the divorced woman of the dignity and protection due to her according to the spousal agreement. So we end on this command here. Look at the last part of that verse. Guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless. At the end of this passage, the focus once more turns to the importance of being faithful. The command addressed the personal and the corporate implications of that, that it is in the best interest of individuals as well as the community that families should not be broken by divorce. This passage reveals the common human condition of faith lessness and disloyalty. Humankind is prone to wander from the creator God and not to keep the promises that we've made to him. A vow that we have in marriage is an idea specifically addressed to this human condition or this human fault that we have. We are so prone to wander. We are so moved by our temporal appetites that are driven by our flesh and our passions that we need words to bind us to the right course of action that we know right here in this time and place is wise and godly no matter how we feel down the road that's why at a marriage wedding ceremony you sit there and go how do you know you're going to be faithful till death do you part i don't know that i am but i know that that's what i should be I know that that's the best way to get the most out of this relationship. I know that's how I secure the blessings of God on my life, on this relationship, and on my family. I know that to be true. Now, I know there's difficulties that are going to come my way that are going to challenge that. But I have to declare that in a vow because we as humans are so prone to wander. We need something to bind ourselves to. Do you see this? And that's the importance of those vows. That's the importance of the covenant. That's why God initiates a covenant with his people. Matthew 9, 10 tells of a time that Jesus and his disciples had a conversation about how difficult marriage could be. And the disciples had it about half right when they said, well, sounds like it would be better for us not to marry at all. Well, I'm not gonna offer that advice to you today, but I can at the very least affirm that I see in myself what they must have saw in themselves before they made that statement. Human beings are unfaithful creatures and faithfulness for life, for better or for worse, is a daunting vow to make. It's uh, interesting, I haven't done a whole lot of weddings in recent years because we have a larger staff. But interestingly enough, as we approach this passage, I had two weddings this week. I had one on Friday and one on Saturday. And it was amazing because I was able to walk through all of this as I'm studying this passage. I'm, I'm entering, I had these vows that are exchanged. And yesterday it was a beautiful picture because I didn't even realize, but in the process of the wedding ceremony, it was revealed to me that the groom had actually led his bride to the Lord while they were in college. Then they began dating. And in that moment when they had written their own vows and talked about these things, one of the things that she brought out was, you were the one that led me to the Lord and you have continued to be a great example of who he is. And I was like, wow, I hope that she can say that in 10 years. And it's not impossible, but I, you, know, you know what I'm saying, right? 
Because, you know, I sat there and, and thought to myself, can I say that? Could my wife be able to say that to me after 15 years of marriage? See, it gets difficult, doesn't it? It gets so tough walking through this. But let me give you some hope. You, all, you always heard that the divorce rate in our country is roughly what? Does anybody know? 50 to 60%. And you know the amazing thing is that the divorce rate in the church is the same as it is in the culture. Okay, but let me tell you something. That's not true. It's not true. The reason it's not true is this. They are generally asking that question. They're not taking into consideration, number one, people who didn't become a Christian until after they'd already been divorced. And so you're not marking it from the time they became a follower of Christ until where they are currently. And the other thing it doesn't consider is how many of those people are you asking who say that they're Christians actually attend church weekly or monthly even? And here's what you find when you actually dig into that is that 38% of weekly church attenders have been divorced or separated. 38 versus the 60 that we find in the culture. So only 38% of people who are constantly coming to church, constantly involved in the family of God, constantly involved in the community of God, actually go through divorce or separation. You know, here's another thing that I hear a lot of times in, in, in the marriage counseling that I do. <clears throat> that is this. You know what? We just need to live together for a little while to see if we even like each other. You know, this is an amazing statistic came out from the National Center for Health Statistics. In 2016, a recent study... And they determined this, couples who live together before marriage have a lower chance of having a long-term marriage than compared to those who don't live together. So the divorce rate climbs when you live together before you get married. Why is that a picture of a truth that I would want to share with you? I just want to show you that God's way is the right way. I mean, over and over again, even secular studies point to the fact that what God says here is right and good and true, and it points us in the right direction. It is a trustworthy word from a trustworthy God. I want to leave you with one story. It's a story of a guy named Lori, or the woman's name is Lori, and the man's name is Terry. Lori and Terry had been married for eight years before his affair came to light. To make it worse, the woman that Terry was having an affair with was pregnant. Lori puts it this way. I could have handled the affair, but something about her being pregnant with the child shifted a lot of things in my mind. One day, however, Lori went to confront the woman who her husband had an affair with, and her name was Vicki. Lori was a new Christian, and even as she was approaching Vicki, she sensed that there was something different about how she was supposed to handle this situation. And once she saw Vicki, Lori did something unexpected, something that just overcame her, and that was she forgave her husband and she forgave this woman, and she vowed to stay with her husband, and she vowed to help raise this child that belonged to another woman. It was very difficult for Lori to come to grips with this whole new reality. There were trials that were coming at her that she could not have foreseen, a lot of forgiveness that was going to have to be given out over and over again throughout their relationship. Yet through her grace and faith, Lori saw her husband come back to the home, saw him transformed, and he became a good husband and a good father. Beyond that, Lori began to invite Vicki into the home for dinner while she was pregnant. Once the baby was born, they decided to have regular visits with this newborn baby. His name was Kirk. Lori loved Kirk as if it were her own child. And you know what? Vicki ended up becoming a Christian through the grace 
that Lori exhibited to her. Vicki ended up marrying another Christian man. These two couples now attend the same church, are in the same Sunday school class, and they see each other as family. 20 years after that, this is what Lori says. He, speaking of God, is the one who can rebuild and restore. He is a God of mercy and forgiveness. In our lives and in our story, God took something that was impossible and made it possible. Why? Because she lived for the glory of God. God is the perfect model of faithfulness, totally consistent with himself and his word. He showed this to Israel through the dramatic prophecy of Hosea, who loved an unfaithful spouse. He shows it to us through Jesus Christ, who loved the church to the point of death, even though we were unfaithful and enemies of his. Romans 5 eight, God showed us his love and that while we were still sinners, rebellious, Christ died for us. The marriage covenant is a mirror of Christ and his church, and husbands are called to love their wives as Christ did the church. Christ loved us for better or for worse, and his promise, if for more than a lifetime, is for eternity. If he can put up with us forever, don't you think he can give us the power through his spirit who sanctifies us to put up with each other for a few decades? Remember, our relationships are reflective of our relationship with God. What does your relationship with your spouse say about your relationship with God? What does your relationship with other believers say about your relationship with God? Do you have something to confess? Do you have something to reprioritize in your life? The only way things get better is when we make the glory of God the foundation of everything we do. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for a powerful word from your inerrant word. And it reminds us of the seriousness that you take with each one of us and our dedication of following you. Lord, forgive us for where we have failed. Forgive us for covering your altar with tears of being frustrated with you. And the whole time, you're really frustrated with us because we don't get it. We want our own way, but we want all the blessings that you offer us as well. But we don't want it on your terms. We want it on ours. Lord, forgive us. Forgive us. Lord, may this community begin to take seriously your word so that we can become a light to those around us, those, those people that you have given us influence with around us. And may you receive the honor and the glory that is due for the great sacrifice you paid so that we could be yours and that we could be one. Lord, for those who have suffered through divorce, I pray that you would grant them the ability to see beyond just that circumstance to how you are redeeming the situations around them. Lord, I even know many divorce tragic situations that yet godly children still have come through. Lord, what a blessing. What a reminder that you are sovereign and that you are good and that you are faithful. Lord, Holy Spirit, However it needs to settle in our hearts, may you make this teaching relevant to each one of us, and may you give us the courage to respond in the appropriate way that you would have us to. We ask all of this in the powerful and sovereign name of Jesus, our Lord. Amen. Amen.